Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Honestly, I can't believe that this is the 100th episode of Creepscast. I really just wanted to say thank you so much for listening and I'm glad that you enjoy it. So hey, let's do what we do best and what you enjoy. As we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I was an inmate in a prison. I witnessed absolute terror. Written by, with a bite. The thing that got me was the noise. The voices shouting and cursing and pleading. The doors banging closed. The snap of locks being turned. Up until then, I had been the big man. All bluster and face set in a sneer like I didn't care. But lying there, hearing that noise, I started to cry. I was 18 years old and it was my first night in a prison cell. I thought about a lot of things that night. How my mother's heart was broken when the police came to arrest me. The few memories that I had of the father who had slipped out of my life when I was 8 years old. The thing that I had stolen and sold for a quick and easy cash. Money that I had then burnt on stupid things. I didn't sleep at all and when the lights went on in the morning, I told myself that when I had served my sentence, I was going to make changes to my life. I would get clean, I would go to college, I would beg forgiveness for my mother and be back in my family home. There was no way I was going back to prison. I could not have been more wrong. Forty years later, I was lying in a bunk in a prison cell waiting for the lights to come on. The sounds of men crying out in their sleep echoed around me. This was my twentieth conviction. There is no three strikes in your outlaw in England. I don't know whether that was lucky for me or not. And it was the eighth prison that I had been in. I had moved a lot to all different parts of the country since my first spell in prison telling myself again and again that this time it was going to be different, that this was going to be the fresh start that I needed. But I always ended up in the same place, inside. I was a loser and I was staring down the barrel of old age. I had wasted my life. The lights flickered into action. The whitewashed walls of these cells stared back at me. I lay there blinking and grimacing. My body was a wreck. No exercise, too many fights, junk food and alcohol when I could get it. It had taken a toll. The hour after hour spent in cramped cells had not helped. I was not the type of prisoner who spent their time doing sit-ups and push-ups. I doubted that I could even touch my toes. If I had been a car, I would have been scrapped or just abandoned by the side of the road. My back ate, my arms ate, my neck, my guts, and my ankles all ate. After a moment, my head joined in too. Sitting up would only make this worse, but I did it anyway. And then my door unlocked with a sharp groan of its own. Another day in prison had begun. I stepped out onto a walkway. Its iron was hard and cold beneath my feet and everywhere that I looked I saw dark metal and dirty grey stone. And washed out men, 
men like me. In the prison, I was serving my latest stretch of five years and was more than 140 years old. In places, it looked more like a castle than a prison. There were turrets and slits in the outside walls rather than windows. It was overcrowded and filthy and damp. It was lousy that it was still being used to incarcerate men in 2022, but building new prisons cost money so this place was kept patched up and running. I remember reading an article somewhere that in America running prisons was a big business, with private companies raking in the cash via specially built supermax facilities. Here in England, the authorities were dragging their heels and making do with the dumps that they had like this. I scowled, as my senses were assaulted by the smell of stale sweat from hundreds of men blended with the mold growing on the inside of the walls. And then I joined a line of inmates being shepherded down a metal staircase by prison guards. The guards in this prison were the same as all the others that I had encountered over the years. Some believed that they were helping make the world a better place. Some were bullies and some were bland. These last types of guards worked in a prison, but it might as well have been a factory or a call center. They turned up, they went through the motions, and then they went home, and at the end of the month, they collected their meager wage. That was my theory anyway. The guard with a clipboard standing at the bottom of the stairs was one of the bland types. He looked at me like I was a box in a conveyor belt and said in a monotone voice, Garden duties for you today, 5674. That was my serial number. I doubted that he even knew my name. I didn't take it personally. I was actually quite pleased. I was not considered high risk, so I was allowed privileges. This meant that I did shifts in the prison's workshop, where the inmates made tote bags and greeting cards, which were sold commercially. I also got to work in the prison garden. Another guard unlocked a barred gate and walked me down a corridor and then with a different key opened up the door that led out to the prison garden. There were no electronic locking systems in this past its cell-by-day prison. I emerged into the fresh air with a smile on my face, and then I shivered violently. The prison stood in the middle of moorland, a rugged, bleak landscape most famous as the setting for the fictional pursuit of a mysterious dog by a certain pipe-smoking detective. It was cold and wet at the best of times, and in late November, the wind felt like it was biting into my skin. Prisoners can't be choosers, though, and it was better than being stuck inside. I wandered over to join the small group of inmates already hard at work and digging and weeding supervised by a couple of prison guards. I recognized one of the inmates. Brendan was 23 and doing 8 months for stealing a police van and crashing it into a police station. He was in the thick of the guarding in action, attacking the root of a plant with a blunt plastic trowel. Another one of my theories is that there are two categories of prisoner. The first type say as little as possible, and grunting is preferable to actually forming words. The second type are talkers. Brendan was a talker. He kept nothing bottled up inside. 
The minute that he saw me, he came over and said, This place is the pits. My girlfriend smuggled in a mobile for me last week. But the reception is lousy because we're in the middle of nowhere. One bar if I'm lucky most of the time, but I get nothing. I glanced around at the guards, and luckily none of them had overheard. I turned back to Brendan. You need to be careful, I whispered. You could have your sentence extended if the guards find out that you have a phone. He nodded and tapped the side of his nose. Subtle as a brick, I thought, and picked up a blunt plastic shovel that was resting against the wall. The garden implements were made by the same people that made the cutlery. There was nothing that could be used as a weapon. The prison garden was in an open square in the center of the prison, and it was a ramshackle affair. Root vegetables seemed to grow okay, and they were cooked in the prison kitchen and served to the inmates. I leaned on the shovel. I had no intention of digging, not with my back and neck and the rest. Brandon had stopped broadcasting that he had done something dubious, and he was talking to me again. You know what one of the other prisoners told me? He said that you're growing vegetables in a grave. You see, they used to hang men here a hundred years or more ago. And hanged men couldn't be buried in a consecrated ground. So they dug a hole below the gallows. And when the poor prisoner had stopped kicking and twitching, they cut the noose and he fell right in. Then they shoveled the soil back over him. It makes my skin crawl, it does, just thinking about it. All those bones under my feet. There are lots of stories in prisons. I dismissed most of them as urban legends. Gruesome gossip to pass the time. I had heard this one before and I patted Brendan on the shoulder and said, Don't believe everything you're told. Especially not in here. And then I shivered some more. The temperature was not only dipping, but it was hurling itself off a cliff. And dark clouds were gathering. They seemed heavy with the promise of rain and worse. And sure enough, ten minutes later, the storm broke. Rain began to pelt us and a bolt of lightning split the sky. The thunder followed seconds later. We ran for the door, scrambled through it, and then stood there gasping. We were soaked to the skin. Brendan looked at me and said, This storm is epic. And he wasn't wrong. As the guards escorted us back to our cells, I could hear the wind and the rain battering against the walls of the prison. Even the thick old stones couldn't keep the sound out, and every few minutes, thunder filled the air. It sounded like the world was breaking apart. I assumed that the lightning was continuing outside. There were no windows where I was, just the glow of the strip lamps that ran high above us and were embedded into the ceiling of each cell. As the door to my cell was locked, they started to flicker on and off. Around me, men I could not see started to cheer and whistle and stamp their feet. Any disruption was like nectar to the prisoners, and they roared their approval as the thunder and the rain and the wind grew louder and louder, and then the lights went off and stayed off. I sat on my bunk in the darkness and simply listened. A small man at the eye of a storm. The storm lasted for the rest of the morning. Just after noon, it ended as quickly as it had begun and the power came back on. 
An uneasy silence had settled over the prison, and I could hear the footsteps of a guard near my cell. The lock turned and the door opened. The guard who stood there was one of the making the world a better place type. He had even once told me his first name, James, as he thought that we were going to bond, and I would share the details of my troubled life with him, and that would set me on the path to rehabilitation. Dream on was my view on that. At that moment in time, he looked like he was in pain. Stupid static, he muttered to himself. I had no idea what he was talking about until my hand brushed a metal rail, and a spark flew from it and struck my fingers. I swore at the sudden stinging pain, and then I put my hands in my pockets and was very careful not to touch anything else. As the guard led me back down the stairs, I could feel the hairs on the back of my neck standing up, and my skin was tingling in places. It was the weirdest feeling. It was like there was a charge in the air. The guard led me out into the prison garden and told me to gather up the equipment. The trowels and spades and the rest lay on the ground where they had been abandoned, ground that was now a muddy wasteland. And just great, I thought. And then I heard a familiar voice behind me. That storm was beyond epic. It was veering on the apocalyptic. Brendan said as he appeared at my side, grinning. I mean, that was so good. It was wall-to-wall -wall storm action. It was one big SOB of a storm, I said, and it's left an almighty mess. Brendan looked at the sodden earth and said in a quiet voice, Wow. And then he started retrieving the equipment. He didn't seem to care that he was getting mud all over himself. I reluctantly decided that I should help him and I was wondering where to start when Brendan yelped out in pain. There was no metal in sight so it can't have been static again, I figured. His left hand was curled up and he was holding it against his chest. What's wrong? I asked. Something bit me, he gasped. I looked down at the ground and could see a big bug crawling away. It was one ugly mother and seemed strangely unsteady on its many legs. I stomped on it with my boot. Its carapace was harder under my sole than it did not give. I put all my weight into it and eventually I felt a crack. And then I spent some time wiping my boot clean on the ground. I didn't want to look at the messy remains and I turned my attention back to Brendan. He was still hugging his hand against himself and pulling a face. You'll be okay, I told him, and together we quickly collected up the equipment and then were led back to the door. Just in time too because the rain started to fall once more and the first crack of thunder sounded like an echo to the door being slammed shut. I was taken back to my cell. I didn't think anything more about Brendan being bitten until a guard came to collect me from my cell a short while after. As he led me along a walkway, I could hear the storm still raging outside. The wind sounded like it was trying to rip the prison building from the face of the earth, and as the thunder growled and the rain struck. Ten minutes later, we reached the prison infirmary. The prison's doctor was waiting for me. He was a tough-looking ex-soldier who I had heard had served all over the world. 
I thought of him as one of the good guys. I had seen him for a few ailments over the time that I had been in this prison, and I always found him thoughtful and kind. Concern clouded his expression when he spoke. Brendan has run in a temperature and I'm concerned he has picked up a viral infection, but the symptoms are not ones that I have seen before in all my travels. I'm going to make a call to put in a request to have him move to a hospital. In the meantime, I think it would be helpful for Brendan to have a friend by his bedside. Is that something that you're okay with? I nodded. Sure, I said. I carried a plastic chair over to Brendan's bedside. The guard who had brought me was slouched against a wall, close to where the doctor was now sitting at a desk with a PC and a landline phone on. Brendan was in a very bad way. His eyes were screwed shut. He was very pale and coated in sweat and muttering to himself and turning this way and that. One of his wrists was held by a restraint that was anchored to the frame of the bed. This was standard procedure, but struck me as cruel then in the extreme of that moment. I said, Hey, Brendan, hang on in there. And the lights went out again. They lasted longer in the storm this time, but with the ancient systems in this prison, they were bound to give sooner or later. In the sudden darkness, I could hear the doctor saying, Hello, can you hear me? Come on. It sounded like the phone line had gone out as well. And then the lights came back on, to an extent. They were much weaker than before and cast a dull yellow glow over everything. That's the backup generator we have for the infirmary, the doctor said, but I wasn't really listening. During the brief blackout, Brendan had stopped moving. He looked to me like he had died. I felt choked up and I was about to say something to the doctor when Brendan's eyes opened. His head turned to one side and he looked at me. The fear trickled through me, ice cold and razor sharp. His eyes were filled with hate and madness. I felt like I was looking into the eyes of some primal creature, of some monster. Doctor, I said weakly. He got to his feet and started walking over to Brandon and me. Hurry, I said. Brandon was twisting and shaking his body and clawing at the air with his free hand and struggling violently to free his restrained hand. He pulled it and pushed and rattled his wrist, trying to escape, but the restraint held. And then Brendan leaned over and began to bite into his own arm just below the restraint. Sickening sounds of tearing and crackling filled with the infirmary, and then he was pulling his arm free, leaving behind his hand. He had chewed through his own arm. He sat up, span around. The doctor stood staring in horror at him. Brendan got to his feet, the ragged bony stump of one of his arms hanging loose at his side and dripping blood onto the floor, the other arm reaching out. He looked at me for a moment and then turned away and began to stagger slowly towards the doctor. The guard who was still somewhere on the other side of the room began to scream. The doctor opened his mouth but was silent and still. He looked paralyzed by fear. Brendan draped his good arm over the doctor's shoulder and leaned in. I did not see him bite, but I saw the agony on the doctor's face. I watched as the doctor's legs crumpled and he fell to his knees. His face was hideously disfigured, 
blood-soaked muscle and bone shimmered in the emergency generator's yellow light. He looked at me, appealing for help with his eyes. I looked away from his grotesque gaze. What could I do except cower in terror as the nightmare continued? Brendan had cornered the prison guard and held the struggling man pinned against the wall. Brendan was tearing him apart. Red splattered over every surface. The doctor, abandoned, was convulsing as he went into shock and moments later he stopped moving. The guard was no longer struggling either. The only movement was Brendan feeding. I got to my feet. My legs felt drained all of strength, and I was shaking badly but I knew I had to get out of there while Brendan's attention was on sating his abhorrent hunger on the guard. I did not know why Brendan hadn't attacked me. Was it, I wondered as I inched towards the door, because we used to be friends. Did a vestige of the young man that I had known remain inside this murderous freak? I made it out onto a walkway. The rest of the prisoners seemed to be locked in their cells and I could only make out one guard through the gloom which had shrouded everything. And the guard was heading my way. It was James. He was clearly oblivious to what had happened in the infirmary. I stumbled towards him. His eyes narrowed in suspicion. Why are you not being supervised? He asked. Brendan, he's killed them. What the? James began. I talked over him. Brendan has changed. He's a monster. You have to get help. James' expression spoke volumes. He thought that I had lost it. No, you have to believe me, I begged, before it's too late. Only it already was. Brendan was staggering towards us. He wore a mask of his victim's blood, and once again he passed me by and closed on James. James would be dead in moments, unless I acted. There was an unoccupied cell a few feet away. Its door was open and the smell of bleach was strong. It was washed out and ready for its next occupant. Move towards the open cell, I yelled at James. Trust me, do it now. He stumbled backwards and towards the cell, and Brendan followed. James was almost through the door when I shot it, jumped to one side. He leaned to his right and I barreled into Brendan using all my weight. He fell into the cell, I did not, and I slammed the door shut. Block it! I screamed at James. He looked utterly lost and confused and terrified, but he did it and then stood there shaking. And then he leaned over and looked like he was going to vomit. We don't have time for that, I told him. There are two people that he attacked in the infirmary, and I've seen enough horror movies to know that. They'll be back on their feet in no time and coming for us. I can't deal with this, James said. Infirmary door locked now. Hysteria later, I replied. Looking very green, he hurried over to the infirmary door and secured it. By this time, more guards had appeared, and they demanded to know what was going on, which was fair enough. Brandon was groaning and hammering on the door of the cell that we had trapped him in. The blood that he had trailed all over the floor was a line of darkness in the gloom, and now there was more groaning coming from behind the locked infirmary door. I looked at the guards and looked at James and said, I really need some fresh air. No way. 
One of the guards snapped back. You should be in a cell. James held up a hand. This man saved my life, he said. I'll take him out into the prison garden. In the meantime, I suggest you rustle up an armed response unit and some people in biohazard suits. There's an unholy mess that needs cleaning up. As the guards looked at us open-mouthed, James led me away. He unlocked the door and followed me out into the prison garden. The storm had ended. The air was clear. I stood there breathing it in, and relief flooded through me. It was over, and I was safe. And then I noticed there was a strange smell coming from the ground. The smell of decay. The smell of death. It rose from the mud and it was growing in strength. Two more guards emerged. As the stench hit them, they covered their mouths and noses with their hands and swore. James looked disgusted. He was standing in the middle of the garden and started to walk back towards the door, clearly wanting to get away from the smell. But he had only taken a couple of smells when the insects began to emerge. They scurried up out of the ground, dozens of them at first. Many of them were like the bug that had bitten Brendan. But there were spiders as well, and they were all rushing out into the open and over James' shoes. More and more insects were joining them. There were hundreds by then, and they were rapidly crawling up him. I could no longer even see his shoes for the layer of bugs and they had started to make their way up his trousers. He tried to kick them off, tried to sweep them off with his hands, but instead of falling away, the insects scurried onto his hands. They ran up his chest, his back, and they had reached his neck. And it was then that I saw the blood, the red beneath the growing layer of insects, and I realized with horror that the insects were biting him. He began to crowd and pan and tried to move towards the door, towards what I guessed he thought was safety. But there were too many insects on him. They covered his face and his hair and soon, the only thing of him that I could see was his blood dripping between the moving swarm of insects as they overwhelmed him. Only minutes after the attack began, he fell to the ground. I had been transfixed by the revolting spectacle but felt someone pulling at me and turned. It was one of the guards. We need to get back indoors now. He said his voice, shaking with terror. I did not need telling twice. As soon as we were back indoors, the door was slammed shut and locked, leaving James to his own gruesome fate. I took a deep breath. I looked at the guards and then said, I would like to go back to my cell now. That was six months ago. I'm at a internet cafe now, writing this all out. The coffee that I had bought has since gone cold. And in a while, I'll be heading back to the hostel where I'm staying. I'm a free man again, and this time, I mean it when I say that I am not going back inside that prison. I've wasted my entire life in prisons, and I almost died in one of them too. In the aftermath of the incident, 
I was taken into a room and told by a man in a uniform that a statement was being issued. The statement said that there had been a riot at the prison and that, tragically, there had been many fatalities. It was a cover-up, pure and simple. I was also told that if I ever said anything about what had really happened to anyone in the prison or once that I was released, I would be in the worst trouble of my life. Well, that's a risk that I'm prepared to take. The truth needs to be known by everyone. A warning needs to be given. I saw an innocent man twisted into a fiend by forces that I have struggled to comprehend. In the many sleepless nights that had followed the incident, I have thought long and hard about what had happened, and I have the scrap of a theory. Now call me crazy if you want, but this is what I believe happened. The hanged men who were buried long ago beneath the ground that became the prison garden had rotted, as dead men often do, but something of them had lingered. Their desire for retribution against a world that had condemned them to be killed, and their bodies treated like waste. Their hatred which burned inside them as the noose had embraced their necks. These were so strong they did not die with them. They lay dormant until these storms awoke them. Their rage then was back from the dead, and it infected the land and the bugs. The one that had bit Brendan turned him into a zombie, the most hideous creature that has ever walked this earth. I don't know where he's been taken to. Some top secret lab, maybe, where the nightmare continues. And not just for him. There are so many obscenely cruel injustices that have been committed over the years in the name of justice that I see no reason why this should not happen again in some other place or time. Only next time it will be worse. Because I truly believe there are unknown horrors waiting out there that no prison can contain. I worked at a 24-hour gas station and had some unsettling encounters, written by 10-Minute Horror. I was there for three years. The station had an auto shop attached but was really needed at night, so I typically just dealt with people coming for gas. Occasionally, I'd be asked to work in a car overnight from the day shift. One time, I found several bags of a substance leaking out from the driver's seat. I was nervous the owners would know that I saw it, so I stuffed the bags back in. The station was out on a country road, so the types of customers that I generally served were truckers or farmers or the random couple driving home from a date. However, there were the anomalies. The car accidents. The drunk driver that killed a small family in the intersection out front. There was a vicious, blazing inferno coming out of that minivan. The dad made it out, but he was on fire and he died in the middle of the road. One time, I served a gas to someone who was being chased by the police. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. I just thought the driver was in a hurry. 
I was robbed at gunpoint twice. It was these same two ski-masked guys, too. They just took turns speaking between the two incidents. Then there was the time an old guy drove up and got out of his car and died of a heart attack two steps later. Those incidents were normal, or at least understandable, explainable. But there was one night something unexplainable happened. It was shortly after 3 a.m., Headlights drove in carrying a 1966 Pontiac Bonneville two-door coupe. A thin trail of smoke was coming from under the hood. The inside of the windows were all fogged up, so I couldn't really see the interior of the car or the occupants. The car drove past the gas station and right into the auto shop. The lights weren't even on inside the shop, but the headlights lit it up. I went to greet the driver and I flipped on the overhead lights of the shop, but they came on weak and dim. The driver's side door opened as I approached and I was immediately hit with a stench of old, damp cloth and dust. A middle-aged man got out uneasily, like his knees were made of twigs. He wore one of those black Quaker hats with dark hair spiking from under it and a graying goatee. The man's face was covered in lines and wrinkles and his eyes sunk back into his head. He looked like he hadn't slept in days. Check the oil, check the engine. He choked out and walked past me, fumbling out an old box of matches. The passenger door closed and a middle-aged woman stood there. She had thick, dark hair that looked like it was greased through with gel and matted to her head. An uneven set of bangs cut across her forehead. The woman carried the same sunken in eyes as the man, but her face was covered in days-old makeup, rosy cheeks, blue eyeliner, and red lipstick. Even through the smearing, you could tell that it was applied with heavy exaggeration. And then the woman smiled at me, and I wish she hadn't. Her teeth were dirty orange and speckled with black dots. Her gums were dark gray. I noticed she only had the front six teeth on her upper and lower jaws. She didn't appear to have any molars, which I shouldn't know, but she couldn't stop smiling to reveal that. The moment the woman saw me, her lips had stretched into a wide-mouthed grin that curved downward like a catfish. It was a strange and frightening smile, like it was pulled and stretched over a screaming face. The woman began speaking to me, but she spoke so softly that I couldn't hear her. I kept leaning forward, trying to get a better ear, but the closer that I got, the further her voice sounded. And then I realized that we were inches from each other's faces. Her breath was rancid as she spoke, and I finally heard what she was saying. Don't go in the car. The woman pulled back and I saw the scream behind the smile in her eyes. She was terrified. Joan. The driver was already outside the auto shop, lighting up a dirty-looking home-rolled cigarette. The woman, Joan, followed him. She looked back, continuing to smile, but her eyes told a story of desperation and horror. They gave me chills, and I was happy the two were going to wait outside. I watched the strange couple walk down to the edge of the gas station, where I made up the corner of a quiet country intersection. I turned to the car, not really sure what to do. After I couldn't get under the hood, 
I figured there was a release hatch under the steering wheel. I went to the driver's side door and saw the window was down. I leaned in through the window and searched and fumbled until I found the latch. I flicked it open and saw the hood pop up. As I was pulling myself out, a thought struck me. The window was up when the man drove in. It was up when he had walked off. How did it get down? And then my eyes caught the rearview mirror and what was in the back seat. There was a little boy staring at me. He sat calmly in the middle seat with his seatbelt still on. He had a strange, swirling facial scar that reminded me of a boy I went to grade school with named Johnny Watkins. He had been attacked by a dog when he was little and large portions of his face were horrendously scarred. That's what this little boy looked like. And he had something that looked like mud and dirt smeared around his mouth and chin. The same smears were on his hands and wrists. The boy wore old, dirty overalls and a flannel shirt underneath. His eyes were locked on me. They carried an accusatory glare, like he was catching me stealing. I quickly blurted out, Hey buddy, just checking out the engine then. We'll get you and your parents on their way. The boy stared back, his brow furrowed down at the center angrily. They're not my parents, he choked out, and then he started to make a strange sound. I couldn't tell what it was at first, but then it became clearer. The boy was laughing in his own odd way. It was like his breath was hitching up repeatedly during the inhale. I didn't know what to do or say, so I pulled myself out of the window and made my way to the hood. I looked out and saw Joan and the man were still at the corner, smoking and arguing. I popped the hood up and was greeted with a cloud of smoke. I figured that it was a motor oil spill or a leak at first. And then I stared down at the engine and I had no idea what to make of it. It looked foreign but also homemade. It was all connected and had metal plates fastened around it, protecting parts of the wiring and cable so it was next to impossible to see what was wrong. I honestly didn't know what I was looking at but I managed to find what looked like a small handle for a dipstick, and I twisted and I pulled it out. It was for the oil. I cleaned it, put it back in, and pulled it to inspect. Basically dry. The little oil at the end felt gritty. It needed a change. The car was parked over our lift, so I didn't have to get in to move it, but I couldn't leave the kid in there. He had to get out, safety precautions and all. I went to the driver's side window, but the window was up again. I tried to open the door, but it was locked. I went over to the passenger side and found it locked too. I peered in through the dirty windows to try and signal to the boy to open the door, but the back seat was empty. The car was empty, and he was gone. The only explanation that I could come up with was that the back seats of the car pulled down, and they allowed access to the trunk. So I checked the trunk, but it was also locked. I knocked on it, trying to get the boy's attention if he was inside. But nothing came back. I looked outside, but I couldn't see Joan or the man. I was confused and nervous, and all I could think to do was explain that our lift wasn't working. So they would need to get their oil changed at another shop in the next few days. 
and then I would send them on their way. A loud clunk made me jump. On the other side of the garage, a loose wrench was on the ground. I walked over to it and picked it up. It had a small, child-sized, muddy handprint on it. And suddenly that odd laugh echoed out from somewhere within the garage. I raised the wrench to swing, but there was nothing to swing at. The loud metal rattling of the front retracting door slamming shut made me yell. I went over to inspect the now shut door, but as I did, the retracting metal doors at the back slammed shut as well. At this point, I figured the kid was messing with me, so I called out to him, telling him playtime was over and to come on out. And then the power went out. The garage was completely black. Not a single window could be seen. I tried to open the front metal gate, but it wouldn't budge. It was like it was welded shut. More metal tools clanged against the ground. One slammed against the metal door right beside my head, and another. The boy's hitched laughter croaked out from somewhere in the darkness of the shop. I couldn't see anything but knew the layout of the garage inside out and backwards. There was a flashlight on the far end of the wall to my right. There were shelves along the wall, and a wide workbench that I could follow. I moved along the metal door to the wall and I found the edge of the bench. The boy's laughter got louder, echoing through the garage. It stopped sounding human now. It was more hyena-like. And the source of the laughter was getting closer to me. With it, I felt a hot, rotten breath assaulting my nostrils. It followed me along the bench and towards the end of the wall. Through laughing, the boy quietly repeated, I'm gonna find ya, I'm gonna find ya. My foot hit what felt like a ratchet wrench, which loudly skittered across the metal grating on the floor. Was that you? The boy squealed out. Realizing that I still had the wrench in my hands, I first picked up. I threw it across the garage, hoping to hit the back wall and cause a distraction. It left my hand, but it never landed. There you are, the voice called out through laughing. Something shuffled behind me. I hit the end of the bench and I reached up, knocking over multiple tools and causing a series of loud crashes. But I didn't care. I felt the flashlight grip and I turned it on, spinning and pointing the light behind me. I wish I hadn't. The boy was two feet from me, and I only saw his face for a moment, but that was enough. The boy's facial scar had unraveled, like layers of extra skin and some strange face scarf covering. Only the fleshy layers were actually attached to him, and they contained rows of needle-like teeth on the inside. When the skin flap opened, it tripled the original diameter of his mouth. I screamed and fell backward. I expected to hit the ground and immediately have the boy's frightening mouth biting down on my face or neck. I hit the pavement outside the garage instead. The lights of the gas station poured over me. I looked back into the garage from my back. The lights were on. The metal door was open. The Bonneville was still and silent. The windows closed and clear. 
Footsteps approached from behind me and I scrambled up, and I turned to see Joan and the man had returned. He flicked his cigarette butt and approached me and mumbled, How much? I couldn't speak. My lower jaw moved, but all I could stammer out was, Don't worry about it. The man shrugged and walked back to the car. I turned and found Joan there, staring up at me. She was whispering something quickly and repeatedly. I leaned in and I heard it clearly. You shoulda listened, you shoulda listened, you shoulda listened. The man called out from the car, snapping Joan back to him. Still smiling, Joan shook her head at me, tears rolling down her cheeks in dark smears. She walked back to the car and got in. The Bonneville started up and it drove past me. The windows were no longer blurred by fog so I could see inside clearly. I saw the man staring straight ahead, Joan sitting passenger beside him, smiled out at me with worried eyes. And then I saw the back seat. It was empty. The boy was gone. I was so afraid that I locked the garage and the gas station, checked my car, then got in and drove for an hour before ever stopping. I called my boss and I told him that I was violently ill and that I had to lock up early for the night. He was less than impressed, but I didn't care. I couldn't go back there. And I didn't. I gave my two weeks and I called in sick for each shift. I never went back to the garage and I try to avoid gas stations in general at night now. But it's not just that. Now, whenever I hear someone laugh, I hear that boy's laugh. That same odd upward hitch. No matter the person, every giggle or cackle comes out the same. And sometimes it turns into that high-pitched hyena cackle. It's been happening more and more. It feels like one of those flus that start slow and take their time weakening your immune system before leveling you. And then tonight happened. I came home and there was a small muddy handprint on the door handle of my apartment. And there was one on the inside too. While exploring a hidden beach in Thailand, we uncovered a life form entirely alien to Earth. Written by Lighting Nations. I had heard about these secret beach from some Thai fishermen and had my heart set on studying the unique ecosystem. But the rest of my group said the idea had dumb foreigners getting themselves killed by acting like dumb foreigners written all over it. Then later on that night at some dive bar, Johnny waited until our girlfriends had nipped to the bathroom and told me that he was in. He even promised that he would talk the ladies around so long as I helped him with a special surprise. The three months of traveling together had taught me that the guy could get anything he wanted with a quick flash of that movie star grin. He waited until Alex and Vicky got drunk on fishbowl cocktails before saying, I think it sounds like fun. While Gary's off creaming over fish, the rest of us will have the place to ourselves. We can rent a little boat and set off before sunrise. I'll leave a note on the hotel staff to send help if we're not back by supper. I'm in, Alex said, snuggling into Johnny's muscular arm. Vicky pursed her lips. 
She and Alex had been best friends since childhood and looked so alike. Short with blonde hair and bright smiles. Locals frequently mistook them for sisters. Fine, she said. First thing in the morning, we set off cutting through waves, Johnny at the helm. The sun stayed hot on her backs and sickening fumes from the boat's engine mixed with the salty ocean air. Did you know that Thailand has almost 3,000 miles of coastline? That's a lot of ocean for hungover tourists to get themselves lost in. But again and again, our fearless skipper insisted that he knew the way. Close to noon, long after we should have arrived, he called, Land Ho! And then everybody's head whipped toward a dark speck along the cerulean horizon. A giant sea stack at least 300 feet tall rolled toward us. I let out a quiet groan, secretly annoyed that Macho Man found the place through sheer dumb luck. It took 15 minutes for him to steer us toward a tunnel along the southern side, where he killed the motor and let the boat bob up and down. Finally, said Alex, as she grabbed flippers and snorkels from beneath the stern. While Johnny wrestled a strap around his heel, he leaned in close to me and whispered, You got everything ready? I tapped the waterproof bag hanging around my neck. He shot me a thumbs up before tipping backward overboard. Everyone else climbed on the ladder, me last into the blissfully warm water. Beside the mouth of the tunnel, Vicky floated in place, anxious. Oh, what's the matter, afraid of the dark? Johnny called back. I'm more like afraid of barracudas. There are no barracudas around here, I said, swimming alongside her. The ocean was so clear that you could see for miles around. Come to think of it, I don't see any fish at all. Johnny said, Give it a rest, Aquaman. And then he flicked on his headlamp and vanished into the shadows. He pulled that alpha male stuff all the time. My hand laced with Vicky's. Don't worry, if any barracudas try taking a bite out of you, I'll use myself as bait. Guided only by our headlamps, the four of us swam along, the narrow trail widening further into the bowels of the stack. These walls are freaky, Alex said at one point. I think there's bugs crawling over them. After navigating a series of bends, blinding sunlight appeared before us. The tunnel opened onto a wide body of water, half the width of an Olympic swimming pool and proudly about 50 feet deep. A horseshoe-shaped beach encroached on three sides, outlined by a narrow forest lush with vegetation and palm trees. Everywhere that you looked, there were vibrant hues of gold, turquoise, and emerald, all silhouetted against the gray-black rock walls encasing the enclosure, giving the space this secluded, intimate feel. Was I right or was I right? Johnny yelled as he swam past the bowl and up onto the sand. Paradise. You couldn't argue there. Heck, it's why I suggested the trip in the first place. After kicking off his flippers, he helped Vicky up on a dry land. I felt a pang of jealousy watching them smile at one another. The three of us spread out and explored while Alex floated aimlessly. The trees provided shade from the constant heat, while gentle waves crashed against rocks, producing a soft melody that could lull babies to sleep. 
There is no wildlife, and not even a marine gastropod, which it did seem odd. However, the uniquely shaped flora intrigued me. After a while, I noticed Johnny waving for my attention at the far end of the beach. Crap, I had almost forgotten. I grabbed the phone from my neck bag, opened the camera app, and gave him a nod. He reached into his shorts pocket, spun around, and discovered a lifeless basin. Alex? He called out. Vicky stepped out from behind a fern and Johnny ran up to her and said, Is Alex with you? She looked from him to me and shook her head. I slipped my phone back into the pouch, and then all three of us spread about, searching and calling for Alex. In under a minute, we had completed a full lap of the forest. Maybe she went back to the boat, Vicky offered. She wouldn't go without telling us, Johnny replied, his voice wrought with concern. Just then, a gurgle went up. The sound of a clogged toilet with fish bones lodged in its throat. Altogether, we spun toward the water and as we did, a wave crashed over the beach, nudging our discarded flippers. There were more gurgles, a real guttural, and then a ripple spread out in every direction from the center of the bowl. It looked like a 500-pound cannonball had plummeted from the top of the stack. The resulting wave briefly engulfed our ankles and dragged the flippers away. Johnny shouted, Alex! His voice echoed off the enclosure back at us. Vicky grabbed my arm, her pulse gathering speed. That horrible cycle continued. Gargle, wave, gargle, wave. There was no rhythm of nature, more like a beach gagging. Gary, what's going on? Vicky asked. Even though I specialized in marine biology, the group looked to me for answers about any kind of natural phenomena, and then they chastised me if I didn't know the answer. The next wave vomited strange blue-white sausages onto the sand. I thought that they might have been a trail of seaweed until I nudged one with my toe and felt something rubbery. Oh crap, I said, flinching away. It was a rope of intestines, threaded with veins. At the realization, a hush fell over the group. My eyes traveled toward the center of the basin, where a red mist spread throughout the clear turquoise, diluting like squid ink. Blood. Vicky retreated, stammering, while Johnny looked between me and the discarded intestine for nearly 20 seconds. What the heck is going on? The speed of those waves accelerated, cascading one after the other, and quickly dragged the pale snake away. A study flashed through my mind. One about dolphins launching themselves onto mud banks to create bow waves which maroon fish. This spark of a suspicion spurred me to say, Get under the rocks, there's something in the water. The two of them exchanged a look, another pang of jealousy stabbing me in the ribs. Now, I shouted, louder than intended. The rocks were slippery with moss, while Vicky and I hopped past vines into the top halves of a palm tree in a deadly game of the floor is lava. Johnny stood with his head in his hands, internally debating while the water surged high enough to swallow his thighs. With reluctance, he eventually hopped after us. Meanwhile, those gruesome gurgles rang out, louder each time. Toward the back of the enclosure, boulders lay spread about connected with the base of the rock wall. 
No sooner had we reached the edge when the strongest wave yet broke against the chest-high rock that we had all halted on, and launched a hissing column of foam into the air. Now, only a few meters of shrinking beach remained. The ocean had come to meet us. We have to climb, I said, breathless. Johnny grabbed my shoulder before I could find a suitable starting point, spun me around and pinned me against the wall. What is going on? He shouted. And what happened to Alex? Those waves are going to sweep us off this rock, I stammered. And as if on cue, salty foam splashed over all three of us. You see, we're being hunted, I said, feeling ridiculous for even muttering the word. None of this was clear in my mind. Gary, what the heck is going on? A frantic Vicky asked from behind my assailant's shoulder. Something hunted Alex, he said, like it was my fault, pinning me even tighter. Yes, no, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You're supposed to be the freaking brain box. We have to climb, I said, my hysteria mounting. There's something in the water. His right hand curled into a fist, but before the strike landed, Vicky grabbed his forearm and he shook her head. She was trembling all over her. Johnny released me begrudgingly. I felt around for divots and recesses, areas that were easy to traverse. My fingers were still wet, which meant that I slipped again and again. And for a moment, I had some sense of how spiders must feel trapped inside a bathtub. Roughly eight feet up, I came across a portion of wall which had a cavity deep enough to lay flat along my stomach and reach down for Vicky. By now, the beach had been devoured, only the caps of palm trees poked out, bowing under every wave. Following me up, Vicky's foot slipped once, twice. Come on, come on, I shouted. Ever the hero, Johnny now got up to his ankles, cupped his hands and boosted Vicky like a weightlifter performing a cleaning jerk, raising her high enough that she could be hoisted onto the shelf alongside me. He raced up the wall after her, her fingertips nudging mine briefly. I was stretching as far as I could, to be honest. But then the most powerful wave yet crashed into the wall, and I lost sight of Johnny in the resulting spray. He resurfaced 20 feet ahead, already paddling in our direction, and at that exact moment, the repetitive gurgle transformed into a churn, like somebody had yanked out a plug and then the water swirled in rich, inward spirals. Immediately, the bowl became a whirlpool. My suspicions were correct. We were being hunted, but by what? What sort of creature manipulated the water like that? Within seconds, the beach emerged, reasserting itself. On the shelf, I pulled Vicky to her feet and then we stood there transfixed, while Johnny careened around a central point closer to the middle of the basin area. His arms flailed as he screamed and got sucked toward the bottom of the vortex, about 50 feet deep. And that's when I saw it. Visible through the clear waves, but also a considerable distance away. What looked like a black serpent wrapped around Johnny's ankle, worming its way up his body. I grabbed the phone from my neck pouch and I zoomed in. Huddled close to me, Vicky pointed at the screen and said, What the heck is that? It wasn't a serpent. For a moment that I thought it might be a giant tentacle. 
but then it split apart into five segments which tapered off to the thickness of a severed arm, each dark on the outside, fleshy and pink on the inside, covered with rows of suckers moving, twitching, and writhing, like hundreds of hungry, hungry mouths. Wherever they eagerly latched on, skin tore off in fat clumps. Red mist spread about the water as our companion got reeled down like a fish on a line, the appendage flexing like a working esophagus. More and more water poured in through the tunnel that we had arrived by. As our friend plunged deeper and deeper, a gaping pit the diameter of a manhole cover shivered open directly beneath the tentacle. I zoomed in on that area, a horrible realization sliding up my spine. Luminous blue lights and barbed fangs aligned the inside of the hole. It was a mouth. As the tentacle tongue reeled Johnny inside, the mouth closed with enough force to crush his ankles together, like the point at the end of a pencil. A trail of bubbles spewed from the poor guy's mouth, which meant that he hadn't died yet, and he even had some oxygen left in those lungs. Above him, the water level evened off to perfectly calm. Vicky buried her head in my chest and sobbed. The process of digestion took several minutes, and so far as I could tell, Johnny didn't die until he disappeared up to his waist. Once he had vanished, the stack quivered and shook. I felt the intense vibrations through these soles on my feet. Another gurgle went up. The beach whirled and foamed again and then bones with gristle still attached floated to the surface. Leftovers. Vicky stopped sobbing long enough to say, What was that thing? A mouth, I said emotionless. When Johnny got too close to the center, a tongue slid out, like a bobbit worm. On the verge of a complete breakdown, she said, You mean there's some sort of killer worm down there? The walls trembled with furious convulsions. Like an expanding lung, I shook my head. It's no worm. Please start making sense. And by now those circles of waves and ripples had gone up again, turning the pool beneath us into a minefield. Mercifully, there seemed to be a limit to how high the water could rise, and we were safe, for now. Look, the waters are violent again, you see, and the walls, they're kind of shivery, right? She nodded. I think this whole stack is resting on something big. Think about it. The water level adjusted to capture Johnny. That suggests a level of intelligence. This sea stack, I think there's a creature beneath it. One big enough to make the entire structure shudder. So why did hunts by gulping down water? Well, possibly it's just a theory. Can you call for help? She pointed at my phone. I tried. No. So what do we do? Dropping into the water would be like diving headfirst into a meat grinder, so that was out. I glanced up at the top of the structure. Professional climbers wouldn't risk an ascent that treacherous. A 250 feet journey to the top, with one small slip meaning a plunge straight into the drink. The best case scenario is that you would crack your skull against an awkward rock and bleed out before getting slowly, painfully digested. Just then, the realization hit me. We could have escaped while that creature swallowed Johnny, I said. The thing's mouth closes to eat, which temporarily calmed the water. 
We missed our chance. Uh, should we wait for the hotel staff to find us? They won't realize that we're missing until dark. Then you have to factor in how long it takes them to find the boat, assuming they actually find it. Plus, we have no food or water. I contemplated for a moment. You could tell from the way the bold churn that the creature understood and more prey lurked close by. I think we should get closer to the tunnel. I said finally, it's the only way in or out. We can shuffle along this shelf. Look, it almost stretches the entire way. In the 20 minutes convincing her took, I found myself wishing that I had half of Johnny's charm. Most of the journey was a careful sideways shuffle along an upward slope. Our backs flat against the walls, but at one point, we had to spring over this little gap, and Vicky took her time working up the nerve. At the exact moment she leaped across, the stack trembled, which made her foot slip. My hand shot out around her waist and pulled her in close at the very last second. The timing couldn't have been coincidental. This creature knew that where we were and what we were doing. I thought tactically. That unsettled me. Toward the edge of the shelf, two full bodies, length away from the tunnel and twenty foot above the water, I looked straight down and said, The creature can feel us. Vicky stared at me with sunburned eyes and confused. The walls trembled at the exact right moment. Maybe it detects movement along the stack, like a spider web. We stood until our legs ached and then sat, the sun bearing down hot on our chest. I made the mental note of everything that I had surmised about the creature. Our biggest threat was the fact that it displayed a level of intelligence, or at least it reacted to certain stimuli. And with Johnny, that reaction had been instant. No way that we could swim through the tunnel before the creature responded. If it set traps by manipulating the reservoir and the walls, then what did that make the beach? A cancerous growth or perhaps a lure? Once again, my thoughts drifted back to that missed window of opportunity. At dusk, the darkened waves almost glittered. A briny aroma wafted out while we sat there. Vicky to my right, her head resting on my shoulder. My arms became overcooked slabs of beef, my mouth dry from the thirst. Neither of us would last much longer. Heck, and another few hours swimming back to the boat would be harder than doggy paddling across the English Channel. Why did Johnny want to see this stupid place anyway? Vicky asked. He wanted to propose. She looked up at me, shocked. What? He was going to propose to Alex. He bought an engagement ring and asked me to take a video. He wanted it to be romantic and thought this would be the perfect spot. Idiot, she muttered. I sat there, contemplating my next statement carefully. What did I have to lose? Not too much of an idiot to make out with, though, huh? What? Yeah, two weeks ago, I said. My eyes fixed on these shimmering waves. That nightclub in Bangkok... I nipped away for a piss and when I came back, you and Johnny were, were... My voice trailed off there. The realization slowly spread across her face. Our lives are in danger, Gary. Is a stupid drunken mistake really so important right now? A drunken mistake, you two were going at it like horny teens. At that moment, I felt more embarrassed than anything. 
I should have confronted them that night, or at least told Alex. But flights had already been booked and deposits were paid. If I had only had more balls, none of us would have wound up in this mess. Okay, Gary, it happened. She pushed away from me and stood, and I did too. I had a lapse of judgment and I'm sorry. Now that's out of the way, how the heck do we get off this stupid beach that you were so obsessed with? A lapse of judgment, you think I haven't noticed the stolen glances. You always said Alex could have done better. Did you really mean Johnny? The two of us stared each other down, a showdown. Twitchy and paranoid. We both wished for the same thing, that the other would slip off this rock and into the drink. A dark part of me wanted to push her myself. And then, as if on cue, the wall jerked with such force that my teeth chattered together. Had the creature sensed the tension between us, or was it simply an inconvenient timing? Either way, Vicky lost her footing and slowly slid along the shelf, her thin arms windmilling around, searching for something or anything to latch onto. She screamed as she toppled over the edge. A heroic dive forward by yours truly saved her at the very last second. I lay flat along my chest, our hands clasped, her trailing in midair alternating between screaming and begging me not to let go. If I simply relaxed my grip, the creature would have rang the dinner bell. Was it really such a horrible idea? She, like Johnny and Alex, would already be minced meat if not for my quick thinking. But I couldn't bring myself to do it, despite everything. I still loved her dearly. However, before I could haul her up, the wall trembled again. The powerful vibrations did enough to force her hand and mine apart sending her plummeting into the perilous waters below. I rose, heart racing, as she disappeared beneath the surface. By the time that she had re-emerged, the bowl was already alive with foam and spit in cascading waves. In the dim light, the inside of the mouth lit up like a glow stick, that tongue sliding out from the hole once again. As the water whirled toward the doves, Vicky got swept away. She slid toward the pit head first, trapped in the whirlpool. The tongue completely enveloped her skull, and within seconds her top half had been flayed and unrecognizable from these sucker pads tearing away flesh and fat globs. Those skinny legs of her did not stop kicking. A dark part of my mind pondered whether it would be better to go feet first, like my loving girlfriend, or head first, like her secret lover. I became so lost in thought that I didn't notice the water level had already settled. By the time that I was staring at nothing more than the soles of two bare feet, I had the realization that it may already be too late. Amped up on fear and adrenaline, I took a little shuffle forward, became completely weightless for a moment, and then the water came up to meet me. I put everything that I had into swimming towards safety. Gaining traction was a struggle, every few strokes the current grabbed a hold of me and held on tight. I swam through the darkness, relieved that my hypothesis proved correct. But then a powerful drag, like someone started slurping the ocean up through a straw. The main course was over and it was time for dessert. I kept kicking. The walls slithered each time that I touched them, a heartbeat. What did Alex say earlier that they looked freaky? Oh crap, I hadn't escaped. I was still inside the creature. It didn't inhabit the stack. It was the stack. 
Perhaps I was swimming through an intestine or the throat. Only vaguely aware of my destination, I kicked madly while around me. Walls shifted and shivered. No face, no eyes, but a simple sentience which made me tremble. A circle of moonlight drifted into view roughly 50 feet ahead. While I put everything that I had into paddling, the water climbed higher and higher, hurling me from one wall into another. I became cut and bruised in a dozen places. Soon, I could see the silhouette of a boat, but my rescue vessel drifted further and further away. No, not drifting. The creature was sinking the tunnel, cutting off the exit. This leviathan had a biology unlike anything else on Earth. As the cavern has sealed itself shut, a huge wave of water careened toward me. One final obstacle. For a moment, I contemplated holding my breath until I lost consciousness and drowned, rather than being served up fresh. But pushing these thoughts away, I dove beneath the wave and launched myself forward like a torpedo. And once I had reached a point where I couldn't hold my breath a second longer, I came up for air outside of the stack. Behind me, the tunnel had puckered shut. Up ahead, the boat bobbed up and down, unconcerned by the day's events. Quickly, I swam around the side, hauled myself up by the ladder, and flopped over onto the deck exhausted. Four of us had set off that morning, and I hope now that I've told you exactly what happened. You'll understand that I am in no way responsible for the others' deaths, and why their bodies will never be recovered. My friend worked for these cities as CCTV archives and has seen some disturbing things. Written by 10 Minute Horror. I hadn't seen Mike in a few months. He had been buried in work and our usual weekend nights out had about disappeared. But then he called me on a Thursday and invited me over for drinks. I jumped at the invite but took note of how depressed he sounded on the phone. By the time that I got there, Mike had already started drinking and he was slurring his words. A dark cloud seemed to hover over him, which got worse as we drank. I finally asked what had been going on with him. Mike turned darker, afraid. He said that it had to do with work. I never really knew what Mike did for a living. I didn't know that he worked for the city and the tech department and he was involved with the CCTV surveillance network. But I never knew what his day-to-day -day operations were, which he began to describe in detail. Mike explained that there were thousands of cameras scattered throughout the downtown core, outlying neighborhoods and well into these suburbs of our one million plus city. His responsibility was to categorize and archive all the incoming footage. Most of the footage went into very general classifications, and they were saved in hard drive farms and identified, with a lengthy combination of numbers and letters for categorical archiving. They were truly meant to be forgotten about. It was an expansive task, but Mike designed and built an AI screening program that detected common patterns in footage, and then sectioned off anomalous behavior for review. The vast majority wasn't anything noteworthy, Something like 99.99%. But then, there was that 0.01%. The car accidents, the assaults, the swarmings, all that bad stuff. 
Those went into a special archive for use in criminal investigations. And then there was the 0.0001%. They were held in a classified archive and contained footage capturing events that for all accounts were unexplainable. This was called the Tartarus Archive. I looked up the word Tartarus after and discovered it was one of the darkest, deepest prisons from Greek mythology. It was said that if you dropped an anvil from heaven, it would take seven days for it to reach the earth, while it would take another seven days for the anvil to reach Tartarus. It was the place you sent titans when there was nowhere else that could contain them. When Cepheus was condemned to an eternity of futility and frustration, with a large boulder and a mountain slope, that punishment was carried out in Tartarus. As it turned out, the name was quite fitting to the archive's growing contents. Some footage could be simplified to strange optical anomalies in the camera, and coincidences of light or crackheads on a bender through these subway systems. Other footage, though, it defied logic. The others are what captured Mike's mind that evening. He had been breaking protocol and bringing hard drives home at night. In fact, he had been splicing the footage together, capturing and compiling repeat aberrations and editing them into linear sequences. Mike wanted to show me some. It wasn't in a bragging or showing off kind of way. It felt more like the sharing of a heavy burden kind of way. I asked if him showing me would get him in trouble, but he waved the idea away. I said, yeah, obviously I want to see what's going on in my city. Mike led me into his workroom where he had monitors and towers and piles of external set up. We sat down and he skimmed through some drives nervously, and then he landed on one. Mike told me this anomaly was codenamed Lincoln Spectre. He pressed play. On the largest screen, black and white footage started up, showing Lincoln Avenue, one of our less attractive downtown streets, at 3am. The camera angle showed the length of Lincoln Ave, as it led into the downtown core. The street appeared to be empty and quiet. From a side road, a woman emerged, walking towards the camera. As she approached the intersection, she turned over her shoulder and appeared to scream. The woman took off, sprinting past the camera, which cut to a new wider angle from another camera across the street. We watched the woman running frantically, seemingly being chased, but she was the only one on the street. There was no one else anywhere around her. The woman kept screaming as she ran and the cameras kept following, cutting between different CCTV angles. We watched as the woman was chased into the middle of an empty intersection. She fell and then cowered, as if something massive was standing over her. The woman's neck stiffened and she began to levitate off the ground. Her body looked like a rag doll as something lifted her by the throat until she was floating, a dozen feet above the road, in the middle of the intersection. Then the woman's head snapped to the left, and her body fell back to the ground. The video ended and it went black. I sat shocked. Mike saw my expression and said, You ain't seen nothing yet. I asked if that was real. If what I saw was unaltered, it was raw footage. Mike said that all he had done was put the clips together. None of the content had been touched. 
He told me he found out the incident ended up being described as a hit and run, and the case was left figuratively open for more evidence to amass, which it never would. The department kept the footage hidden, claiming it was a camera malfunction. No one outside of Mike and his boss had seen the video of how the poor woman had actually died. I started to understand the air of somberness that Mike was carrying around. Mike started the next video. This one was codenamed Black Crab and was much longer than the previous one. It started in these subway systems at the underground Walkley station shortly after closing up for the night. Walkley was the last stop on the route and the exterior was shouldered by a new housing development on one side, an untouched forest and swampland on the other. The camera was pointed down along the subway platform on the east side and showed its entire length with benches and garbage cans populating it. At the far end, the tunnel was filled with darkness. The lights on the platform shut off and the station went dark. The camera switched to night vision and everything became visible again. My eyes trained on the platform, waiting for something to happen. Finally, there was movement. It was coming from the tunnel. It was difficult to identify what exactly it was at first, as its movements were strange and the footage was grainy. But it got closer to the camera and I got a better look. It resembled a human, well a man, but he was walking on his hands and feet, upside down, with his back arched and his stomach pointed to the ceiling. He had long dark hair that dragged along the ground and he wore tattered layers of old jackets and torn pants. He moved like a crab, jerkily yet quickly and easily as he made his way to the staircase. The footage cut to a new camera in the dark hallway leading to these stairs out of the station. We watched the crab walker claw up two steps at a time, and then crawl over the turnstiles and towards the exit. The footage cut again, now showing the exterior of the station entrance. The crab walker squeezed and twisted and maneuvered, his body through the locked and closed entrance gate. It looked impossible to accomplish but he did it. Once outside, the crab walker eyed his surroundings before skittering off towards the woods and disappearing. The footage cut to an hour later and it revealed the crab walker reappearing from the woods. He was dragging a small animal by the tail in its teeth. The animal looked like a cat. The crab walker squeezed back through the gate, crawled through the station and disappeared into the subway tunnel. Again, Mike saw my expression and told me that there was more. He showed me the length of the video, which was over an hour long. Mike had compiled over 20 sequences of the crab walker creeping out of the subway station and into the woods. Mike skimmed through the video towards the end and we watched the crab walker come out of a sewer in a downtown alleyway. It crawled over to a pile of garbage bags and cardboard boxes and then it jumped into them and some kind of vicious frenzy ensued. There was someone else in the pile of garbage. Hands and feet thrashed about as they were struggling for their life. Then the movement stopped and the hands and feet went still. The crab walker's body moved jerkily about, but I couldn't see what was happening because of the darkness and all the garbage bags and boxes obscuring the camera's view. 
Mike leaned over to me and whispered that the crab walker was eating a homeless man. This caused a criminal investigation as the dead body was found and it was festering in the open alleyway. Mike followed up on the inquiry. What he discovered was the crab walker was who authorities believed to be a man named David Fletcher. Decades ago, David had been a prominent lawyer with a family. One Christmas, there was a house fire and his wife and kids were killed in the blaze. It happened to be David's fault. He lost everything, including his mind. Everyone has a breaking point, whether they know it or not. A place where they bend too far and then snap. Well, David found his. Family and friends described his descent as nightmarish. David lived on the streets, became addicted to drugs, and tumbled into mental illness. The last anybody knew of him was from 10 years prior. He had thrown himself in front of a subway at the Walkley station, and no one heard from or saw him again. It appeared that somehow David had survived the subway hit. His back had broken and healed strangely, causing him to move the way that he did. He had adapted to the new posture and lived in the darkness of the subway tunnels, finding sustenance from drain water and the wild animals that he caught. That was what Mike found out at least. But then he said, that was just the answer the investigators gave in Discovery. Who knows where the truth lay? Mike said that there was always an answer for the videos that he saw. Whether the answers were true or not, no one knew. But the ones that had to become public all needed explanations, however absurd. Either way, David was never found and didn't reappear on the subway footage. Mike plugged a new hard drive in. He poured a fresh drink and told me this was the one that was troubling him. The file was codenamed Cloud Mirror. I wasn't sure that I wanted to see it, but before I could object, Mike had pressed play. All the monitors lit up with footage from different intersections downtown. On the exact same date and time as each other, there were five in total. The streets on each screen were empty and quiet, no cars or people. Suddenly, at the exact same time in the center of the intersections, a small glow pulsed into existence. It was some kind of orb, roughly the size of a bowling ball. The streetlights around it pulsed with energy waves as the orb grew larger. It grew up to the size of a beach ball. And then it flashed out, the streetlights went back to normal and the intersection was as lifeless as it was before. I asked Mike what they were and he told me that he had had gigs of footage of the orbs and had watched them repeatedly. He didn't know what they were at first, and then they started to change. Mike clicked on to the next video. Again, the five monitors lit up at the same intersections in time of night, but several weeks later. The streetlights glowed and pulsed and an orb manifested into existence again. It grew to its beach ball size, but then altered its surface and glow. Something gas-like replaced it, growing outward into a couch-sized cloud of gray. One of the cameras was closer, so I got to see these small clouds in detail. It looked like a volcanic eruption wrapping around itself. They were large, constantly morphing blobs that curled outward from a glowing center, resembling a mandible fractal as a gaseous-based organism. It was fascinating to see them floating in the middle of the street, 
so alien to our roads and stoplights and street lamps. And then they began to move, gliding down empty roads. The cameras cut to different angles, following the clouds on some unknown path, zigging and zagging onto new streets and through alleyways. And then they would stop. The clouds hovered in the center of their intersection. They would lower to ground level, standing straight up like a large coffin, holding rigid to the shape. Their exteriors continued to shift and mold together like magnets made of smoke. Something on one of the monitors caught my eye. Down the street, people appeared. They had seen the cloud and were walking towards it. The group looked drunk and fascinated by the floating entity, so much so that they were approaching it. As they did, the cloud became brighter. The street lamps around it paused. The group were in some kind of trance, staring into the morphine blob. One of the group, a guy, stared into it like a zombie and then walked right into the cloud and disappeared. None of the group tried to stop him. Instead, another one followed him in, and another and another. All five members of the group disappeared in the cloud, and then they reappeared one at a time. The guy first, and then in the order they went in. Only they weren't stumbling and boisterous and drunk now. They were walking upright, using minimal movements. They formed in a perfect five-person circle for several seconds over quick words, and then turned and all went in separate directions. Their strides, arm swings, and speed all matched. Another monitor showed a similar situation with a larger group of people, lost in reverie as they marched one after another into the cloud. Each monitor showed the same thing now, people entering the clouds and coming back out, different. Mike stopped the video. I asked him if he had shown this to anyone else and he said that he hadn't, not even to his one boss, which was a problem because he had a meeting with his boss in the morning to discuss the missing footage. I asked why he didn't show the footage to his boss. This footage seemed more than serious. People were being replaced by something. Mike sighed and put a new video on. The main monitor lit up and showed a new downtown street. The day was from earlier this week. One of the clouds was floating in the intersection. A middle-aged couple were walking nearby, the husband with a slight limp in his right leg. The couple saw the cloud and were sucked in by its aura. They approached it, eyes wide and mouths open. Both the husband and wife entered the cloud and disappeared. After a moment they reappeared, the husband's limp was now gone. Mike turned to me and said, That was my boss and his wife. I'm a cop and I saw a high school kid shoot a, oh hell, I don't know what I saw, written by N.S. Lewis. The Claremont Claws were up 14 to 3 and 6 of those points had been run in by my son, Brandon. It was his first high school football game. I was feeling good up there in the bleachers as the halftime show started. I had the whole night off and my boy was kicking butt, and the first hints of main autumn were in the air. I reached into the pocket of my sweatshirt to warm myself up a bit more. And Linda, my wife, elbowed me when she saw me pull out the flask. Oh, relax, I said. I'm off duty. No, I mean pass it over here. 
I grinned, looked around to make sure that nobody was keeping tabs on the Claremont chief of police and I took a quick slog. And then I passed the flask to Linda on the down low as Louis the Lobster took the field. Louis was the team mascot. When I had gone to Claremont High, he had been this big, fuzzy, stuffed animal type thing. But a few years ago, some kids got into the basement and tore the thing up during the off-season. So, they had rebooted Louis, and they had ordered a new suit. And this one was more realistic looking and more menacing. And Louis had an angry lobster scowl now, and his claws looked like red mouths filled with lumpy teeth. Both versions were ridiculous in different ways, I thought, one being way too goofy and one being way too serious. But then I didn't get bent out of shape about it like some folk did. It was a high school mascot, nothing to get worked up about. Down on the field, Louie was doing his best to do just that, and get the crowd worked up. He was waving all ten arms around, and snapping his claws like crazy. In addition to the cosmetic makeovers, the new suit also featured some animatronics, though there was still a kid in there doing the bulk of the work. Noah Fletcher, his name was. I didn't know him before that night, but I later did some research on him. He was a just a kid, an awkward kid who spent a lot of his time online, and who didn't have many friends at school. People were surprised when he had auditioned to be Louie, and even more surprised when he had nailed the audition. He was a dork, Brandon told me after the incident, but like a cool dork, you know. He didn't look down his nose at us, and he tried. He tried and that made him cool, you know. Didn't just sit there and feel sorry for himself. He got in that suit and he danced his butt off. Halftime was wrapping up and the crowd was egging Louis' antics on. After another hit of whiskey, I was doing the same. Up on my feet shouting, uh, Get him, Louis. Rip him to shreds. And that was when Joel Clements stood up from his seat in the third row and began climbing down the bleachers. I noticed him out of the corner of my eye. I had had a run-in with him the year before when I had pulled him over for driving 15 and a 45, and I found a half-smoked joint that he had hastily tucked into the crease of his seat. Now, he was probably just going to grab a snack from the concession stand, stricken with the munchies. I was off-duty, so that wasn't my concern, but something made me turn a little more in his direction and watch him. Some instinct that drained the warmth of the booze out of my body, and it left me feeling cold. Joe walked right down to the bottom row, but instead of turning left to go to the concession stand, he turned right, making his way toward the 50-yard line, where Louie was winding down his show. I stopped clapping, and I reached down to my side for the gun. It wasn't there, of course. It was down in my truck in the parking lot. And what was I doing anyway? reaching for my gun because some kid was a little too high and couldn't find his way to the boiled hot dogs at a freaking high school football game. Gary, said Linda, what is it? Huh? I turned to her. She looked a little scared. You've got your cop face on, what is it? Oh, nothing. Just saw some stoner and wanted to keep an eye on him. Make sure that he didn't get himself hurt. I nodded back over in Joel's direction and saw him hopping over the little fence down to the sidelines. 
but then I knew that something bad was going to happen. Hey, I shouted, but it was no good. The crowd was applauding Louis' performance, and I got the sudden unshakable feeling that even if Joel had heard me, he wouldn't have stopped. He was on a mission, which meant that I had to be too. Joel stepped onto the field, and I started shoving people aside, making my way down there too. But I never had a chance to get over the fence before. He pulled the gun out from the back of his pants and leveled it at Louis. I know a Fletcher and fired three times. As I leapt the fence, the applause in the stands turned to panic screams, and I hit the ground running. Louis was on his back, spasming, his giant claws reaching up to the sky, opening and closing. Joe brought the gun to the side of his own head, and I crashed into him in an instant before he pulled the trigger. The shot went up into the twilight sky. I was on top of Joel then, pinning his arms to the ground, and he looked at me with swollen red eyes. A grotesque smile twisted itself into shape on his pale face. I did it, he said. I punched him hard across the side of the head and then he was out of it. Louis, I saw, was also out of it, maybe forever. The fierce lobster had stopped snapping his claws. Some of his limbs were still waving around but I knew that was only due to the hidden mechanisms. At the station, I locked Joe Clements in a jail cell, and I sent our dispatcher assistant to Darlene, telling her to get some rest and that I would man the phones. And then it was just me and the kid, still unconscious in the building. I sat in my office, drinking black coffee by the pot, and I sent Linda a few texts, letting her know that everything was under control. It wasn't. I switched between the video feed of Joel tossing and turning in his cell, burning with some kind of fever, and the series of texts that I had received from Bud Greenleaf. Bud and I had gone to school together and he was with the EMTs who had lifted Louie, Noah still in the costume, into the ambulance that had wailed its way to the 35-yard line a few minutes after it was called. The text said, Jesus Christ, Gary, the kid's dead, and he died a long time ago. It doesn't make sense. He's decomposing. What happened? Uh, can you come follow us and meet us at the hospital? Come, this isn't right. I'd been dealing with other things like a panicked crowd and a murderer, so I didn't even have the resources to look at my phone as the texts were coming in. But once Joel was finally in his cell, I read them uneasily and I responded. I'm tied up here, bud. I'll send some guys, though. I radioed into the three men that I had left at the football field. The four of us together were the entire Claremont Police Department, and I told them to send two to the hospital and to report back. Through the monitor, I saw Joel stirring his cell. I left my coffee in the office and went to wish him a good awakening. Why'd you do it, Joel? Why'd you shoot Louis the Lobster? Some kind of grudge, getting too much attention that you thought should be yours. Joel sat up on his cot and put his face between his hands. He started shaking, I thought with sobs of remorse. But when he lifted his head, it was with insane laughter. I did it. I actually did it. I shivered. I had dealt with plenty of violent drunks and even a few domestic violence cases that escalated into murder. 
but I had never seen anybody positively ecstatic about taking a life. This was the deep end of things, and I didn't have my certificate to swim there. Yeah, I said, putting my trembling hands behind my back. You sure did. You killed a classmate. I have hundreds of witnesses, and they'll all agree with the both of us. You did it. Why? Joel stopped laughing and seemed suddenly terrified. Why didn't you let me do the rest? Why didn't you let me off myself? Well, because it's my job to make sure people don't go around dying willy-nilly. Now, I answered yours, so you're going to answer mine. Joel shrugged. I can try, but if you didn't see it, you wouldn't understand. Trying is good enough, I said, glancing at the nasty bruise that I had left on the side of his head. Good, I thought. He deserves worse than that. And if there hadn't been a crowd of people watching, would I have given it to him? I thought that I might have in the moment. That wasn't Louis the Lobster, said Joel. No, I agreed, because Louis the Lobster isn't real. That was... That wasn't Noah either, said Joel. Oh, then who was it then? Joel shrugged again. Like I said, you wouldn't get it. You didn't see it. You said that you would try. You're in a lot of trouble either way, but if you try, it helps you out a little bit. The kid ran his hand through his hair and sighed. Alright, uh, you gotta smoke. No, start talking. Alright, alright. So last week, I was hanging out with Noah during lunch period. Just sort of wandering the hallways, you know, shooting the crap. You two were friends. We were, we were best friends. So we were walking and talking and somehow we passed by the janitor's closet. You ever heard anything about that? I knew about the janitor's closet. There were legends about it back when I was going to Claremont High. And apparently those legends were still hanging around like ghosts. Sure, I said. The janitor's closet. Nobody's ever been inside except that one kid who was never seen again. Or that other kid who was also never seen again. One from every graduating class. Never seen again and nobody could even remember their names. Spooky stuff. But those are made up stories. It's just a supply closet that they keep locked. So troublemakers don't steal toilet paper. You're dead wrong about that officer. I mean that's what I thought too. That there was nothing supernatural about it. I thought it was funny that everybody was legitimately creeped out by it. So I made a proposal to Noah. We would come back at night when everybody was gone, and we would break into the closet. We would stage some kind of scary scene and take a bunch of pictures of the two of us there. It would mess with people's heads, and maybe get us some popularity for having the balls to go into the janitor's closet. Joel started shaking again, and this time he was sobbing. God, he wailed. Why did we do it? It's my fault, it was my stupid idea. Any suspicion that the kid was messing with me had vanished. Even as I suspected his story was about to take a turn into the delusional, at least it would be an honest turn. Wait here, I said, and then went back to my office for the pack of smokes that I kept in a drawer. I had quit years ago, but on some nights when things in town got ugly, and my faith in people got stretched gossamer thin, 
I still sucked one down. In my office, I took a few moments to check that I had my ringer on, in case somebody was trying to reach me, and then tried to raise the unit that I had sent to the hospital on the radio. When I didn't get a response, I felt a pit start to open up on my stomach, but I had forced it closed and headed back to the cell. The kid was talking and I had to keep him talking, before he wised up and started asking for a lawyer. I lit a smoke and I handed it to Joel through the bars of the cell. He gave me a surprised look and then took it with a trembling hand. After a deep drag, he said, Thank you. I won't tell your parents if you don't. That was another thing. His parents, I hadn't notified them yet, but I would have to do that soon enough. I was surprised that they hadn't heard the news already. I wanted Joel's story before they had a chance to get between us. So anyway, later that day, Noah made an excuse to go down to the school basement. That's where they kept the Louis costume at. He said that he had to check on something, but really, what he did was unlock one of the windows down there. That night, we rode our bikes over and slipped in through that window. It was so easy, and we could have done so many different things instead of what we did. We could have written messages on chalkboards, could have messed with the principal's office, anything but the janitor's closet. Joe finished his smoke and dropped it into the dingy toilet with a sizzle. Then he leaned his mouth under the faucet of the sink there and took a quick drink of water. We headed upstairs and down the dark hallways, using our phones to light the way. But once we got to the closet, there was another kind of light. A green light seeping out from the closet, through the gaps around the door. Noah saw that and wanted to call this thing off, but I told him. He choked back a harsh sob and went on. I told him to stop being a baby, that the janitor had just left the light on by accident or something and I went to work on the lock. I had watched a YouTube video and after a minute or two, I had it open. I was so proud of myself. Pride goeth before the fall, officer. Pride goeth before the freaking fall. We were going to scatter plastic bones and stuff like that around and start taking pictures. That was the plan, but as soon as I had opened that door, the green light spilled out. I saw that it was coming from a crack in the wall. At first, it was swirling everywhere like an aimless fog, but it started to coil together like a snake. Noah started to scream and the snake of light took his open mouth as a sort of invitation, and it wormed its way inside of him until it was gone completely and everything was dark again. I cleared my throat. I don't want to sound insensitive, Joel, but I have to ask. Did you maybe take some pills or smoke a little something before this all happened? Joel shook his head. I'm not going to get high before I do something like this. Break into the school, are you crazy? It happened and I saw it. And after that, Noah wasn't the same. We got out of there fast, forgetting the stupid prank. And we got back on our bikes. Noah made me take him home. He kept asking what had happened. What had slithered inside of him? And I told him that I didn't know, maybe some kind of weird gas leak. I said maybe he should go to the dock for a checkup, just to be safe. When he got to his house, we said goodnight and he went inside. He wasn't at school the next day, 
I kept texting him, but he didn't respond. I pulled my phone out and checked it again for missed messages. No word from anybody. Come on. But I saw him that night at 1am in my bedroom. I woke up and there he was at the foot of my bed staring down at me. His eyes were glowing green in the darkness. And before you ask, yeah, I had been smoking a little weed before bed. But Jesus Christ, not that much. Man, I tried to scream but I couldn't even open my mouth. So I tried to tell myself, it's just sleep paralysis dude, to calm down. But I couldn't though. Not when Noah walked over and started stroking my forehead. His touch felt so real and cold. He leaned down and started whispering in my ear. He said, I'm growing stronger again and soon I'll be everywhere. I'll be in your closet and I'll be in your mama. I'll be dripping from the faucet and soon, very soon my pal. I will drip all over this world and transform it into the screaming place that it wants to be. Do you see? And I did see. I saw my dad coming home from work, covered in blood, having just stabbed his foreman 63 times. He was screaming at my mom, demanding to know what was for dinner. She said that he was for dinner, and bashed his skull in with a meat tenderizer. I watched, frozen in terror, and heard wails outside. Human wails, people moaning in agony and wails of sirens cut short as ambulances crashed into each other. Through the window I could see a green fog overlaying everything, and I could see people running down the street with missing limbs, or the flash flayed from their faces, and other people chasing them, and other people chasing those people, armed with golf clubs, gardening shears, guns. I was a rational man and believed that at best, this was all a fever dream or a bad trap. But still, I shivered. So, you felt like you had to stop him? I said gently. Yes, I mean Jesus Christ, I didn't want to do it. Who wants to shoot their best friend? But that wasn't Noah anymore. That was some a demon or something. I don't know what it was. Just that it was evil and it had to be stopped and nobody would believe me if I went for help. And I know you don't believe me either, and I know that I'm screwed. My entire life is screwed. I sighed and I lit two more cigarettes, one for him and one for me. I believe that you believe what you're saying, I said, and I know it wasn't easy for you to tell me that either, and I appreciate your cooperation. I'm going to call your parents now and tell them what you did on the off chance that they haven't heard by now. Do you have their number? Joe gave me the number and then sucked on a cigarette in gloomy silence. I left him in his cell. Back in my office, I sat down and I waited for my heartbeat to slow. Was there some part of me, some little sliver of my lizard brain that actually believed that crap? If there was, I had to push it aside and focus on the next steps. I would call Joel's parents, but first, I didn't know what was happening at the hospital. I tried the boys over the radio, but no response. I tried texting Bud, the EMT. Nothing. The pit of my stomach opened up again, and this time I couldn't will it to shut. I dialed up the hospital and listened to the line ring and ring. I hung up and decided that Joel's parents could wait. 
I had to find out what the heck was going on and if nobody would answer it, then I would have to haul my butt over there and see the situation with my own eyes. I pushed myself out of the chair. It took an effort and my knees cracked when I stood. I was getting old and beyond tired. As I scooped up my keys, there was a great crash out in the hallway, followed by a harsh scraping sound. I put my hand on the weapon strapped to my hip and hustled to the door, sticking my head into the hallway only to see, was that a lobster tail? It was. The door separating the public area of the police station from the holding cells had been shattered apart, and the giant tail was disappearing into the darkness left in its wake. I heard Joel scream. I took a deep breath, steadied myself, and then broke into a sprint down the hallway toward the cells. I nearly slipped and looked down to see that I was following a trail of green slime. The pit in my stomach turned into a gorge, and then when I made it to the cells, it opened up into an endless abyss. Louis the Lobster stood tall, with his scaled back facing me, snapping his formidable pincers in the air. Joel was shouting in wide-eyed terror, Shoot it! Shoot it! My mind scrambled to make sense of what I was seeing. Louis the Lobster, mascot for the Claremont Claws. I knew that. My son played for the Claws. Tonight was his first game. And during halftime of that game, I had watched Joe Clemens shoot three bullets into Louis the Lobster, who wasn't really a lobster but a boy named Noah. And that boy was dead. My EMT friend, Bud, had told me that. That was right, wasn't it? But if it was right, then what the heck was this thing in front of me snapping its claws? Shoot it, wailed Joel. Please. I drew my gun more because I didn't know what else to do than out of any intention of using it. Halt, I said. Put your claws, hands up. Louis ignored my command and began reaching his pincers towards the bars of the cell. Jesus Christ, shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. But I didn't shoot it. There was a boy in there and he must have somehow survived the bullet wounds. Maybe the lobster costume had dulled their impact. And maybe they had given him some heavy-duty drugs at the hospital that jacked him up and allowed him to break down the door to the holding area. Now that he was here to get his revenge on his assailant by frightening him, as improbable as that all seemed, I had to consider that it was possible and so I couldn't and wouldn't shoot him. And after all, Louis couldn't do more than frighten Joel, right? Steel bars stood between them. I said, freeze and put your hands up. Louis closed each of his giant claws around to four bars and snapped them in half with a metallic crunch. With his wiggling legs, he peeled them aside, creating an opening into the cell. And then he began shuffling inside as Joel shrank back into a corner. This certainly was all a good argument in favor of shooting Louis. God forgive me. I muttered and pulled the trigger, aiming at Louis's segmented tail. The shot landed and a spurt of green slime oozed out of the wound, but it did nothing to slow Louis down. And then it was too late. Louis was upon Joel, grasping the frightened boy with its legs. Joel let out one final cry as Louis opened a pincer in front of Joel's neck. He simply had said, no. And then Louis snapped his claw shut and Joel's head toppled from his neck and down onto the dingy jail floor in a gush of blood.
his body slumped down beside it. I unloaded my clip in a frenzy, and Louis jerked with the impact of each shot, flailing his legs and I was reminded grotesquely of his performance at halftime earlier that night. Only here there was no cheering crowd and nothing to celebrate. Louis fell to the ground as supine next to Joel's body, opened his claws one more time slowly, and then closed them forever. Meanwhile, a hideous maw opened under Louis's twitching antenna, and I recoiled as a green fog began spewing out of it. I kept dumbly pulling the trigger of my gun at the substanceless fog, though the bullets were all spent. In terror, I remembered Joel's story about how the green fog had seeped into Noah's mouth when they had broken into the janitor's closet. I kept my mouth sealed tight and I backed down the hallway, but the fog wasn't moving towards me. It drifted over to the sink, swirled around in the basin for a moment, and then shot up and into the faucet. I left that bewildering and gruesome scene in the jail cell and drove unsteadily to the hospital. I felt drunk, though the little whiskey that I had at the game had worn off long ago. The hospital parking lot was nearly empty, which I took to be a bad sign. The squad car that I had sent was parked in the drive in front of the ER entrance. I pulled in behind it and I got out. A man was there sitting on the curb, clutching at his hair. When he looked up at me with bleary eyes set in a pale face, I recognized him. Bill Larkin lead reporter for the Claremont Times. Bill, what happened in there? Bill shook his head. I started to make my way past him, but he clutched my pant leg before I could make it inside. Don't, he said. It's my job. I tore free of him. The door slid open for me and I walked inside. I should have listened to Bill. The officers that I had sent there were lying dismembered and scattered. Their extremities flung far and mingled with what must have been four to six other bodies. I saw a torso with Bud Greenleaf's ID card clipped to his chest. I saw Martha Blanchard's severed head, staring at me in amazement. She had been the front desk receptionist. I vomited and wiped my chin and then walked back outside to sit next to Bill. I was in there when it happened, he said. I hid like a coward. There's no shame in that. You'd be dead if you hadn't. It was. Christ, you're not going to believe me it was. Oh, I know what it was, I said. It came down to the station after I left here. This should be a national story. An international story. But if I pitched it, I would be laughed out of a career. So then don't pitch it. The thing's dead now. It's over. All that's left to do is pick up the pieces. And picking up the pieces wasn't all that easy to do. And as I found out soon enough, the horror was far from over. I spent the rest of the night talking with the families of the dead, doing my best to explain what had happened. Some of them had already heard from the witnesses at the hospital who had seen Louis unleash his terror. Some believe that Noah had been acted upon by some heavy-duty medical-grade drugs, and though I knew that wasn't the truth of it, I didn't try very hard to dissuade them. Some didn't believe my abbreviated account at all at first. They thought that I was playing a cruel joke on them. The hardest call was to Joel's parents. 
They were out of town and weren't even aware of the incident at the football field. I spoke with his mother and when she finally understood that her son was dead, the phone carried her wails of grief from one side of the county to the other and down deep into my gut. News of what had happened spread around town but no further. Bill didn't even run an article on it in the Claremont Times. There seemed to be an unspoken agreement to treat it as an unexplained tragedy and nothing more or less than that. The town effectively shut down for a few days in mourning, and when it reopened, things were different. At first, I thought the mounting tensions were a result of what had happened at the football field, the massacre at the hospital, the unexplained nature of what had happened at the police station too. At Hannaford, people would fill their shopping carts without meeting each other's eyes, or saying a word of greeting to folks that they had known and lived next to for years. It was as if they all suspected each other, capable of harboring some unfathomable monster inside. That I thought was understandable enough, and I thought that it wouldn't last long. But the tension began to bubble into violence. Fights broke out nightly at Willie's Bar and Grill. They spilled into the streets and turned into brawls. Somebody threw a brick into the window of a Bob's Hardware. Car tires were slashed. Garage doors graffiti. And down half of my police force, I worked around the clock trying to keep the peace. Waddle County agreed to send over two men as temporary replacements. But they were weeks out and until then, I was working 18-hour shifts. Nor did I get much rest when I clocked out. Sleep brought nightmares. Nightmares of giant lobsters crawling through our town, beneath an endless green fog, crushing buildings and people between their monstrous claws. And idle hours awake brought bad memories. Louis' carcass lying next to Joel's decapitated body, that hideous maw opening and spewing forth its evil poison. The violence continued to escalate. It was impossible to keep up with. Somebody burned down the Unitarian Church. People that I had grown up with snarled at me, spat at me, and they called me a pig. My nerves were raw, and I started to feel like I might snap too. You need some time off, Linda said last night after work. This is eating you alive. Why don't we go somewhere for a week? Can't, I said, pouring a whiskey. I looked at the glass for a moment, reminding myself that I had to be careful with that stuff. I had seen it get its hooks into too many people, just like my old man. Two drinks, I promised myself. Two drinks. I slammed the first one down. I know you think it's your duty to single-handedly save the world, but it's really not, Gary. And I'm scared. Something crazy is happening here. It's like there's something in the water. I was in the middle of fixing my second drink when she said that. I froze and whiskey kept pouring over the edge of the glass and onto the counter, until Linda gently took my hand and lifted the bottle. Gary, she said, you're not well. Like there's something in the water. In the jail cell when Louis had died, the fog hadn't come after me. It had gone into the sink faucet. The thing had told Joel. I'll be dripping from the faucet and soon, very soon, my pal. I will drip all over this world and transform it into the screaming place that it wants to be. 
We were a few miles out of town and had our own water well, and so did our neighbors. And as the thoughts tore through my wrecked brain, I realized that the violence and vandalism was mostly contained to these city limits. Despite the fact that just as many people within the town limits lived outside of the city. So, it was in the city water pipes. It had slipped into the faucet in the jail cell, swam against the pressure, found the main line and spread out, splitting a part of itself off at each branch, flowing into each home, pouring out of shower heads out of kitchen faucets, into cooking pots, into drinking glasses. I did a desperate mental calculation, trying to remember if I had ingested any city water since it had started. We had a commercial water jug at the police station. Did Darlene use that water or tap water to make the coffee? Christ, I don't know. Had I gone to the diner and ordered a glass of tap water? I didn't think so. Where else? Honey, I said, I want you to think carefully. Have you drank any city water recently? What? I was kidding about there being something in the water. I know, but I think there actually is, so think. Maybe at Claire's house. Didn't you go there the other day? Uh, what? Yeah, yeah. I went to Claire's on Monday for our book club, but nobody else showed up. Claire wasn't even there, so I left. Okay, okay, good. Now think. Anywhere else that you might have had some water? I don't know, Gary. You're scaring me. I took a deep breath and I looked at my wife. I didn't think that she was infected. She was worried, but had almost supernaturally been patient with me. The infected weren't patient. Bran, I called. He's at a friend's, said Linda. And then her eyes got wide. Oh no. She scooped her phone off the kitchen island and called her son. She held the phone to her ear for a while and finally shook her head. He's not answering. Where is he? She told me and I was off. Cedar Street was mayhem. A group of teenagers were overturning a car parked on the side of the road. I slowed as I passed them, shining my flashlight out the window looking for Brandon. He wasn't with them. FTP, one of them shouted. He flipped me off and I kept driving, past an old man kicking a dog, past a pile of leaves burning on the sidewalk, past a tree with figures hanging from it that were, I hoped, dummies, rather than human beings with burlap sacks over their heads. Finally, I reached number 88, and as I pulled up to the curb, I saw that the large bay window jutting out from the front of the house was shattered, and there was a body lying on the ground among the broken glass in the flower bed. It looked to be a woman. I got out of the car with my hand on my weapon and slowly approached the body. Heavy metal music blasted through the broken window and I heard something smash inside. Ma'am, I said. She didn't respond. I could see now that it was Tina Godfrey, Brandon's friend's mother. I reached down and felt for her pulse. She was cold and dead. I walked around and tried the front door, terrified of what I might find inside. It was a lot. Inside, the music was so loud that it hurt my ears, and I was hit with a horrible stench. That almost made me spill back up the whiskey along with the hamburger that I'd had for lunch. Brandon, I shouted. You in here, buddy. The overhead lights were off, but I saw a flicker coming from a room at the end of the hallway. 
a strobe light. That was also where the music was coming from. I crept towards it, drawing my gun and trying to steady my nerves. Brandon. Brandon stuck his head out of the room. Hey, Pops, he yelled. Come join the fun. Are you okay? I asked, getting closer to him. What happened to Mrs. Godfrey? That wasn't me, that was Jason, he laughed. Threw his own mother out the window, can you believe that? And where is Jason now? Oh, he's in here, come on in. I was close enough now that I could see my son's face as the intermittent light hit it. It was covered in blood and he was grinning like a maniac. You want to try some pops? He asked, before bringing an arm out of the room and showing it to me. It wasn't his arm. It was severed at the elbow, and it had several bites taken out of it. I didn't know what to do. God help me, I didn't know what to do. I told you, Pops. Told you once and I'll tell you again. This world is an inch away from being a screaming horrible place. And we're going to give it that last little nudge, aren't we, Pops? Just a little nudge. That's all that it takes. He sunk his teeth into the severed arm and pulled away a chunk of flesh. I turned away. I thought about just leaving him there. Going home and telling Linda that he was dead. That we had to get far, far away, fast. And then I thought about actually killing him, so that it wouldn't be a lie. For a second, I thought about killing my own son, even if that wasn't really my son anymore. Drop the arm and put your hands up in the air, I said. What are you going to do, Pops? Arrest me. He laughed, but did as instructed. I approached slowly, pointing my gun at him with one hand and fumbling for the cuffs with the other. I got them and I dangled them in front of him. Put these on, I said. Or what, Pops, you gonna shoot me? You don't have the balls. I bit my lip and shot him in the foot. It would be a long time before he played football again. He dropped to the ground and howled in pain and rage and I slipped the gun into my holster and slapped the cuffs on him. Oh, he said smiling now. Kinky. I grabbed the cuffs by the chin and dragged him down the hall as he snapped his teeth and spat blood at me. We made it outside and I thunked my son down the concrete steps and scraped him along the walkway until we got to the squad car. I threw him in the back and then got in the driver's seat and drove home sobbing as he told me about how much he was going to enjoy eating me alive. Back at the house, I went inside and gave Linda a partial account of what had happened while Brandon squirmed in the back of the squad car. I argued that we should keep Brandon in the basement, tied up and possibly gagged, until we could figure out what to do. She refused to allow that, and so I told her about the cannibalism. So that's where our son is now, tied to a chair in the basement. Linda agreed to the gag too, after hearing the evil filth pouring out of his mouth for a few hours. As for me, I went to the computer and started typing up this account. I thought that maybe somebody would read it and would be able to help us. Maybe somebody knows what this thing is and how to stop it. That was my hope. But just as I was coming to an end, I got a text message from Darlene, the dispatcher and assistant at the station. It said, What did you think of the coffee yesterday? I tried something new. Made it with tap water. My vision started to waver as another message came through. 
We'll see you very soon, Chief. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. And again, thank you so much for being a continued listener to the podcast. 100 episodes is honestly crazy for me to think about. But hey, let's shoot for another 100. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.